Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation. This week, how to be better theologically, socially, nationally, and in terms of one's own personal development, responsibility, and interaction with the fellow humans with whom we share this fragile planet and ting. Good evening. Thank you. Tonight I shall be looking at many kinds of self-improvement. And what better people could I have chosen to assist me than my two guests, Paul Bassett Davis and Carla Mendonca. Hello. Hello. Now, Carla, as a successful actor, you must love it when you get a stonking review and can say, in your face, Kate Blanchett, you're not the only person who can do bonkers. <laughs> in fact, anyone can do bonkers. It's doing slightly phased with underlying optimism that's difficult. Well, I don't see acting as a competition. Of course it is. Look at Meryl Streep. She's won loads of stuff. Yeah, I'm sure she suffers from the same insecurities we all feel. You never know when the phone will stop ringing. That's why with each performance she does enough acting for ten films. Yeah. Yeah, she could be hit by a bus tomorrow. She wouldn't want her last review on this earth to read nuanced. Now, Paul, you're an actor and writer, but in your downtime you're a motivational speaker, life coach and author of ten steps to overcoming your dependence on step-based self-help books. <laughs> yes, Jeremy. And if there's one simple thing I've learned in my long career, it's that there is no one simple thing you can learn about self-help. But the one thing I have learned is that people will believe whatever they want to hear, no matter how much you contradict yourself. Right. So what sort of advice do you offer? Well, Jeremy, success is all about having a positive attitude. I'm sure you sometimes wish you were more successful. That's something we all feel from time to time. Obviously, there are lots of reasons why you're not more successful. But if you had to identify one thing among all the many factors contributing to your abysmal failure and the huge disappointment you've been to yourself and everyone else, what would it be? Well, I'm not sure what, I'd... What, what's the one thing about yourself that you would change? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't mind being taller. Ha-ha! So, you think of yourself as being short. Well, relatively, compared to other people. This isn't about them, Jeremy. This is about you and your shortness, your lack of stature, your feelings of pitiful inadequacy. Because, if you're honest... That's what you feel, don't you? I'm starting to, Well, yeah. this isn't all about you, Jeremy. This isn't about you. People think self-help is something they can do on their own, but they can't. The truth is that you are your own worst enemy, and any enemy of yours is an enemy of mine, which means you're also my enemy, and I say that as a friend. I want you to think very hard about what you've done and how you're going to make it up to me, because it takes more than a few glib, inspirational quotes to achieve any lasting change. Remember, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, followed by another step, then a taxi to the airport, then two hours on a plane next to a screaming child. <laughs> I apologise. More of your expertise later, Paul. Now, for many people, the quest to be better is a religious one. And if you choose a particular creed, that must mean you think it's better than the others. Or perhaps you feel your personal beliefs are just the ones best tailored for you, like an exercise regime or a screensaver. But I'm not sneering at pick-and-mix spirituality, apart from using a deliberately disparaging term for the restless search for greater meaning to life. For lots of people, it's not enough to have better teeth or kitchen units or abdominal muscles or finances or LinkedIn profile. Some people are looking for something much more profound than themselves, which is often just as well. <laughs> 
<laughs> but then, perhaps that quest is a projection of some imagined depth within themselves. What do people mean by the plaintive yearning cry, this can't be all there is? Are they afraid to die or have they run out of toilet paper? <laughs> Why can't this be all there is? There is quite a lot of it, and the more you know, the more impressed you are by what there is. There are 8.7 million animal species of which we are one. We evolved from single-celled organisms to being the best-dressed and most needy of primates, capable of complex scientific investigation and maudlin introspection, and we floss. <laughs> There are 7 billion of us speaking 7,000 languages in 196 countries. We are one planet out of tens of billions in our galaxy, which is one of 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. But this can't be all there is. <laughs> Religions originate to provide explanations, but also guidance on being what the authors consider to be better. And new faiths emerge, each trying to improve on existing religious thinking, but not always successfully. Judaism and Islam are very strict about cleanliness, especially around food. But the religion that came along in between them is surprisingly lax about it. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus gets into a row with the Pharisees. Then came unto him the Pharisees, and when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashen hands, they found fault. Understandably. <laughs> then the Pharisees asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. Hang on, this is all irrelevant. Come on, Jesus, focus. <laughs> oh, here we go. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. Well, Jesus, this is basic food hygiene. <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder how many of the 5,000 people for whom you made tiny fish sandwiches became violently ill. <laughs> He goes on. Doesn't he? Hang on. I'm just scrolling down. You're reading that off a Kindle? No, actual scrolls. That's uh, the problem. You can't just stroke parchment. Why not? I don't know. I think it's forbidden in Deuteronomy for some reason. <laughs> oh, OK, he's back on track here. Whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. Oh, really? <laughs> and he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. Now, I hate to go against the faith in which I was raised, but I think our saviour is way off the mark at this point. He has a basic grasp of bodily functions, but he's confusing metaphor with human biology. Yes, we do purge our systems by going to the lavatory. There you go, listener. I've just taught you how to detox. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Despite acres of shells in W.H. Smith's. But if he's really saying nothing you eat can make you ill, he hasn't got around much. Two words, Jesus. Amoebic dysentery. <laughs> the best slimming aid the holidaymaker can pick up on his travels, and perhaps your own father's punishment for our not believing his words as laid down in the rough guide to overly romanticised backpacking destinations. <laughs> what Jesus seems to be trying to do is not start a new religion, but declutter Judaism, focusing on core beliefs and living a simpler life. His followers were a sect, practising lifestylist anarchism with lax personal grooming. Maybe he called it Christianity and was misheard. <laughs> 
He also tries to update the religion, accentuating the principle of love thy neighbour as thyself and extending it to all humankind, which was quite trusting of him considering he didn't know many people that well. He had thousands of fans, but only 12 real mates and one of them was quite dodgy. <laughs> One of the ways we could all be better is to be more open and less suspicious of strangers. When we take the time to get to know them, we find they're not so different from us. Rural communities can be quite insular, but once you're accepted after, say, 40 or 50 years, people can't do enough for you. In London, we're thought of as standoffish, but the fact is, it's quite busy here, and sometimes we want a bit of space. Of course, we don't chat on tube trains. We're trapped underground in a crowded, airless environment, hoping it doesn't break down and the police don't kill anyone. <laughs> Paranoid people getting panicky, there'll be a suicide bombing, because somehow life has it in for them personally. They walk around thinking, oh, It'd be just my luck if a giant meteorite hit the Earth and destroyed it, right where I'm standing. <laughs> <laughs> On the underground, we make the most of our enforced captivity to read a bit of something or collect our thoughts. We're not there to make friends. But some people are always trying to strike up conversations. They think they're friendly, but in reality have no boundaries. I was doing a gig once at a town festival, and one of the volunteers took it upon himself to come into my makeshift dressing room before the show and say, We've been feeling a bit sorry for you, sat in here all on your own. <laughs> I like a bit of company, me. <laughs> it must have been some kind of weird psychological warfare to shake my faith in what I was there for, like approaching someone at the start of a marathon and saying, <laughs> Bet you wish you'd bought your car now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> He was undermining and distracting me when I was clearly preparing. Well, I would have looked as though I was preparing. In reality, I was staring at a blank piece of paper on which I'd written the word slough. <laughs> or maybe he views all unattended humans as an opportunity because some people see others as existing for their entertainment. They think it's a sign of their sociability that they're not very good on my own. <laughs> but if you can't stand your own company, why would you imagine other people are going to want it? It's not something you can offer on free cycle. It's intrinsically bound up with you. What I mean is there is community spirit and then there are people who just want to get in your bloody face. And if they do something for you, it's because they want approval. I noticed your pots were a bit dry, so I watered them. Yes, but you didn't have to tell me, did you? How much better it would have been if you'd never said anything and I'd had no idea of the sacrifice you made to keep my pots moist. <laughs> Some friends of mine moved down from London to the West Country, but not long after they moved in, their new baby became ill and they had to return to London where they were stuck in hospital for several months. Now... While socialised medicine did everything possible to help their tiny daughter, back in Devon, their new neighbours went quietly to their house, tended their garden, picking the vegetables as they ripened and putting them in their freezer. And the most lovely thing about it is, until my friends returned months later with their now healthy daughter, they had no idea that any of this had been going on. Some ostensibly neighbourly people would have been unable to resist giving them a running commentary on their neighbourliness, Skyping with daily updates. Just to let you know, I blanched and sliced the runner beans diagonally and they're clearly labelled with the words runner beans. They're in the front left of the freezer as you look at it standing with your back to the washing machine, which I must say has seen better days. The courgettes I peeled because I can't stand the peel. Some people can, but it makes me gag. I know you urban sophisticates probably prefer them with the peel on, so I've thrown them away. You had a mountain of post. I didn't know you had an aunt in Canada. Well, you used to. She died on Friday. <laughs> 
funerals tomorrow, but I'm happy to go for you because I could do with the break, frankly. Sorting out your underwear has left me exhausted, especially running around in it. And I had to kick your bedroom door in. Did you know you'd locked it? Anyway, no need to thank me. I'm just glad I can be in your face, even when you're 200 miles away. Isn't technology amazing? I'll call you tomorrow and let you know how grief-stricken your relatives are. I can't stand funerals, personally. All those mopey people. But it'll be a change of scenery. Better go. I've got a plane to catch. You can reimburse me by back payment to tell for now no my friend's neighbors were just pitching in silently and instinctively now i'm not suggesting it's remarkable that country folk would put themselves out for anyone new to the village that i'd expect them to spray the garden with agent orange to flush out possible insurgents <laughs> what i mean is that we often think of rural people as being natural conservatives who would advocate self-reliance but many people who live in villages act in a way that shows humanity is interdependent now conservatives might say exactly that's why we don't want the state getting in the way and anarchists might say the same and you might suspect that I coming from a socialist tradition would advocate refusing to take part in philanthropic gardening and thus forcing the local authority to face its responsibilities and bring runner beans fully within the social care system <laughs> however in this instance I would concede that the state can't do everything but where I would differ from conservatives and agree with anarchists is that I don't buy into the idea of competition if you look at society as an extension of the village, who do you want to be? The bloke with the biggest leaks or the bloke who tends the leaks of his neighbours while they tend to their sick child? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think you'll find, Jeremy, that the urge to better oneself is a biological drive that runs throughout the natural world. Even the common cold virus resents being thought of as common and strives to become a lower middle class sniffle. <laughs> and viruses are actually evolving to become more powerful and dangerous. Well, because of antibiotic resistance? No, because of men being competitive about their symptoms. You see, being better doesn't only mean getting well. We also need others to be inferior in every way, including morally, which is where the idea of a scapegoat comes from. The scapegoat was originally an actual animal and was highly prized, especially for its artisanal scapegoat cheese. <laughs> the problem was that scapegoats were so valuable they kept getting stolen, and when you've been robbed, the natural reaction is to find someone to blame, which is why you need a spare scapegoat. If you haven't got one, just steal someone else's. <laughs> Interesting, but I disagree and I'm right because I'm better than you. I can see nothing positive about competition except when it doesn't matter. It's fine in an egg and spoon race at the village fake to raise money for the church roof. It's okay at international sporting level, even though it's about narcissism, mindless patriotism and bunging the Olympic Committee so you can hold it in your garden. But do you really want to see competition in areas of life that are important? Why? Did sibling rivalry make you happy? Even if you did become favourite, it was a hollow victory because what does it say about your parents that they didn't value their offspring equally? Do you want to be treated by a competitive doctor? Isn't it disconcerting when they already seem to be trying to break a record for the most patients seen in one day? <laughs> Would you like to see our motorways invigorated by the spirit of Formula One? Aren't there enough knobheads tailgating and overtaking on the inside? And when they've beaten you to scratch with services, do you want to see them celebrate by shaking up a bottle of LucasAid from Smith's and spraying it over the RAC bloke? <laughs> and do you want the biggest and strongest supermarkets to win the battle with your local shops? Which brings me to a subject we've discussed throughout the series. We're often urged to make better choices as consumers. But as we saw in our programme about food, we get contradictory messages. Let's take fair trade. We want to help people in developing countries, but don't want to have to go there and teach a man to fish. 
First start, we'd have to retrain to be a fishing teacher. Buy the equipment, fly there, find someone who's keen to learn, and then try to teach him, despite not speaking his language. He'd get hungry and irritable and say, look, just give me a bloody fish, and at least I'll have eaten for a day, and you can get on with your marking. So... <laughs> Instead of all that malarkey, he grows roses and coffee and we pay him and he can buy fish in his long-established local fish market if he can get past David and Samantha Cameron and their attendant photographers. <laughs> but as with all trade, the power and most of the profits lie with people other than those toiling in the fields. Independent farmers who grow fruit and vegetable cash crops can, if they filled their quotas, eat some of it themselves. So that's better than just growing coffee, which you can only eat in cake form, or flowers whose only function is to be the first thing we see when we enter a supermarket, so we think we've died and gone to retail heaven. <laughs> and if we're going to import stuff, perhaps it's better it's fair trade. The downside is the air miles. Because arguably more important than paying a fair price is the fact that we are polluting our planet in a way that's going to put developing countries underwater and make farmers wish they'd paid more attention during their fishing lessons. <laughs> How do we bring down carbon emissions and keep transporting food all over the world? Even if you live in the luxuriant Vale of Evesham and eat seasonally, it's likely that asparagus you buy in May, even if grown a mile from your supermarket, is driven to an airfield, flown to Algeria for trimming and enhanced interrogation, <laughs> then to a secret black site in a former Warsaw Pact country where it's hosed down and subjected to a cling film restraint technique before being rendered back to England and driven under cover of darkness back to the area where it was picked. <laughs> Which is a good reason for eschewing supermarkets in favour of greengrocers and farmers' markets. We now have lovely farmers' markets in London. They're a sign that an area is being gentrified and the greengrocer will soon be forced out of business by high rents. <laughs> but there's a new mini Sainsbury's that covers you for the six and a half days when the farmers' market reverts to being a bit of road. <laughs> Gentrification means an area climbing socially. But let's think about our individual social status. Bettering oneself usually means making more money, but also acquiring the manners of a higher social class. The purpose of elitist educational institutions is not purely academic. It is to socialise humans into the elite, so that a bright child, even if from humble beginnings, knows how to approach a dining table seated at which are ministers, and CEOs, landowners and bankers, without projectile vomiting into each of their faces. <laughs> through both nerves and legitimate disgust. <laughs> All education has a social function. Am I right, Paul? Oh, absolutely, Jeremy. We don't necessarily know intuitively how to be better. Much of our behaviour is learned, and a big part of that is learning to please others. And it's a process of trial and error. I liken it to what happens when we train a puppy. Come on, boy. Yes, you're a good boy. Walkies. OK, she's excited about something. I'd better join in. Bit of tail wagging. Oh, yes, you like walkies, don't you? Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. No, she likes it when I'm enthusiastic. No problem. Woof, woof, whatever. Come on, then. Off we go. Good boy. This way. Come on. OK, if you want to stand on the grass, well, since we're here... I'm going to take care of some business. So if you'll excuse me, I'll just... Uh... Oh, that's it. Good boy. You're going to watch. OK. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat. And there you go. That's the way. Who's a good boy? You're a good boy. Yes, you oh, are. Yes, yeah, she likes that. Wait, what? Oh, my God, she collects it. <laughs> that is weird. Wait, I don't believe it. 
she's throwing it away. Okay, well, I guess that one wasn't good enough for her. <laughs> okay, come on now. Good boy. I know, I know she's covering her disappointment. I'm going to make it up to her. As soon as we get back, I'll do another one. A really good one, right in the middle of her bed. You'll like that, won't you? You'll like that? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. You will. Interesting. You're saying life coaching is much like training a pet. So have you had similar problems with your clients? Oh, yes, and that's why I never let them on the couch. Of course. <laughs> But let's continue with the theme of social mobility. Very often, people who've done well for themselves still define themselves by their original class. Understandable, but it's a bit irksome when someone from a humble background plays that card long after they've become extremely rich. Sir Michael Caine, multi-millionaire Hollywood star and British national treasure, still complains that he's an outsider who never got to play Cleopatra because of snobbery. <laughs> People who've done well for themselves are often very conservative because they think their story is proof of the meritocratic nature of the market. Tony Blair is someone who was already upper middle class and privately educated but has become more and more of a free marketeer the wealthier he's got. He's now vastly richer than his parents were and he got there through sheer hard greed. <laughs> And despite the stereotyping of politicians, there have always been posh Labour politicians and working-class Tories. Strategically, it's useful for both parties. The Conservatives want to reassure working-class voters that they're not out of touch. Labour wants to reassure middle-class voters that they are. And both parties learn by having a varied intake. The Conservatives increasingly elevate people from modest backgrounds and ethnic minorities and even the female sex to the top of the party. And not only for decoration, it needs to harvest their inside knowledge the more efficiently to govern. Before their first cabinet meeting, they get shown into an oak-panelled room where someone looks up and says, Ah, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We've had our eye on you for some time. Now, do tell... What are the effects of water cannon on your people? <laughs> but it's become a cliché that David Cameron and George Osborne can't possibly understand how hard life is for ordinary people. I'm sure they can. All they need to do is think about all their stuff and most of what they do and then imagine life without it. Can't be that difficult for educated men, so it must be that they just don't care. If they did, their poshness need be no impediment. What's important is not where you come from, but what you're doing now. Having said that, it is slightly preposterous that Prince William has a job. Just a regular Joe, no better than you or me, apart from using a title that lets on he believes he is genetically superior to most people in the world. <laughs> but there he is in his helicopter, adored by millions. Oh, it is lovely. <laughs> They're helping people. He doesn't have to, you know. He could sit around drinking Earl Grey tea and oysters all day. But there he is, like an angel of mercy, driving a flying ambulance. First he flew air-sea rescue missions off Anglesey, now an East Anglia air ambulance. Seems like he's been looking down on people all his life. <laughs> think it's the least he could do. He is the Duke of Cambridge, after all. He might feel a morsel of responsibility for his underlings trapped in pile-ups on the M11. And you know he'd be happier picking them off with a high-velocity rifle. <laughs> Don't tell me he doesn't play Ride of the Valkyries to his iPod when he's up there. <laughs> Love the smell of Pims in the morning. 
Now, you could argue that his background isn't his fault, that being royal is a hereditary disorder, but he has choices. He could disappear on a foreign visit, get his hair cut like Audrey Hepburn's and ride around Rome on a Vespa with Gregory Peck. <laughs> or he could just announce that he's going to retrain in Reiki or one of those other careers you explore when your plans go awry. <laughs> or should he do what his father is planning and be a politically active king? Now, being a progressive monarch sounds like a contradiction in terms, but I suppose the calculation is, without the status, there's no cloud. If Charles announced that he was just like us, we'd think, yep, only with bad genes and no life experience. <laughs> and notably, Charles limits himself to planning issues, rather than scrawling urgent notes to ministers about revolutionary versus reformist roads to a classless society. We could become one of those Nordic monarchies in which the king works part-time as a tree surgeon and plays sax in a scar covers band, <laughs> but our history militates against it. The sense that we are better than other countries because of our imperial legacy is deeply ingrained and very unhealthy. All countries do a bit of that parochial bravado. I'm sure most national leaders say, Our armed forces are the best in the world. And very few say, Bless them, they're really not our strong point. <laughs> but we British are, I think, quite well placed to shake off the hubris of nationhood. Because to sound climactic in the closing minutes of the programme, we're better than that. One of our strengths is an indefatigable and good-natured sense of our own uselessness. <laughs> Travel the world and you'll find people crowded round battered tellies with precarious aerials in makeshift bars, cheering on Man United and Chelsea. And yet millions of British people knowingly and determinedly support football teams that are rubbish. <laughs> and they take their sons and daughters along to watch rubbish football teams, to teach them that there is something heroic about blinkered loyalty to a doomed enterprise. <laughs> And perhaps even deeper in our national psyche than all the glory of empire is a humbling lesson learned from our illustrious past. We might have had a foothold in every continent and a navy that ruled the seas, but were we happy? Weren't there days when we wished we could be Finland? <laughs> there must have been times when Britannia thought... Well, I've got here, but what's it all been for? Like Obama does every day. <laughs> So we've come to the end of the show. Thank you, Carla. What have you learned this evening that might make you a better person? Not to try and compete as an actor. Just not to worry about what anyone else is doing. There you go. If Meryl Streep was hit by a bus, it wouldn't make you a better actor. Exactly. But it might bring some subtlety to her performance. Mm. <laughs> That's a great attitude, Carla. The only person you should worry about being better than is the person you were yesterday. Very true, Paul. Because that person was a total loser. <laughs> Stuck in the past, obsessed with yesterday, when it's today that is important, because today is the first day of the rest of your life, or possibly the last one if you don't watch out for that bus that's just missed Meryl Streep. <laughs> Can I just say, before I get complaints, there is no bus heading for Meryl Streep, just as there is no desert island on which cursed a young maroon's obscure academics and cellists you've never heard of. There is no bus, OK, listener? And venture capitalists aren't really dragons, though the world would probably be a better place if they were. Good night. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy with additional and better material by Paul Bassett Davis. It was completely transformed by the performing skills of Paul Bassett Davis and Carla Mendonca and raised to dizzy heights by the producer David Tyler. The programme was a positive production for the Better British Broadcasting Corporation.
Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation from 2014 was written by Jeremy Hardy and produced by David Tyler. It was a positive production.